Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God, we ask it that the words to come would point to the word made flesh in you, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We talked last week about the advantages that you and I have in reading the Bible. We have a book that is compiled and has all four gospels in it called the New Testament. And for us, it is always at our fingertips. And the advantage that we have as we look at the life of Christ is that we generally take a global view of Jesus' life as it is presented in each of the Gospels. And so on Good Friday, we talk about the seven last words of Christ from the cross, which of course is a combination of all four Gospel writers. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But every now and again, it makes sense to take each one of these four brief biographies of Jesus' life neat, not mixed. Just the pure Matthew or the pure Mark or the Luke or John. And it's not the seven last words of Christ from the cross that each writer gives, is it? Luke gives three last words from the cross, as does John, but those are three completely different last words from the cross than, than, than each other. Matthew and Mark just give us a single word of Jesus from the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. It's Aramaic. It's what Jesus spoke. It's what he asked. My God, my God, why, 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 why have you forsaken me? It's called the cry of dereliction. It's a Latin word meaning to relinquish, to let go of, to abandon completely, to run out on. Jesus, the derelict, Jesus the abandoned. And so the year is 65, maybe 70 AD, about 35 years after the death of Jesus. The aging eyewitnesses who were there when he died cannot agree on just what he said from the cross. There are at least seven sayings floating around the ancient church. Did Mark know about the other six? And if so, why on earth, why in the world would this be the only one you would choose to write about in your biography of Jesus? Well, for one thing, this saying of Jesus from the cross has the most compelling claim to historicity, doesn't it? No one would ever make this up. If Luke and John knew about Jesus' question, they didn't report it. Maybe they didn't because how could he ever speak so hopelessly, so blasphemously? My God, 
why have you forsaken me? Maybe they didn't believe it. Or maybe they didn't have the guts to repeat it. It takes a brave and brutally honest writer to admit that those are the words that Jesus died with. Until you remember what Mark is like. Mark is always in a hurry to tell his story. He is the leanest, the frankest writer of the four. Mark doesn't flinch from the truth. Mark doesn't shrink about telling us about Jesus' short temper, sometimes his cruel words, sometimes in exasperation with his disciples at the utter cluelessness that they have. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the surest word. It is the truest word. Jesus really said this. It's so shattering that nature herself winces and shrinks back in horror. The earth quakes with fear. The sun is so ashamed that he hides his face. It's noon, the peak of the day, but for three hours, the sun is in eclipse. It's blacker than at midnight. As black as it was before God commanded, let there be light. Do you remember the storm that punishes the moors of Scotland the night that Macbeth murders King Duncan in Shakespeare's play? It's so oppressive that daylight never arrives the next morning. At noon, it's dark as midnight. Three score and 10 years I remember well within the volume of which time I have seen hours dreadful and things strange. But this sore night hath trifled former knowings. By the clock tis day. And yet dark, dark night strangles the traveling lamp. Is it night's predominance or the day's shame that darkness does the face of earth entomb when living light should kiss it? Darkness entombs the face of earth when living light should kiss it. Nature herself is horror-struck. It rebels. The sun is so ashamed at Macbeth and what he has done to his king that it hides its face in shame. This sore night hath trifled former knowings, says the old man in Macbeth. This sore day has trifled former knowings, says Mark in his gospel. A strong, cynical centurion, the captain of a hundred in Caesar's army, a battle-tested, hard-bitten veteran of, Romans, of Rome's endless wars. He manages to see through the horror of this tragedy, and he lets loose with a shocking, towering confession of faith. Surely this man was God's son. Can you believe it? You probably wouldn't believe it if you were there. In Mark's gospel, no one knows who Jesus is. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' mother doesn't understand him. His disciples are clueless about his true identity. Every religious professional, every theology professor misses the measure of Jesus' significance. But now, Somehow this centurion, the very one who hammered the nails into his hands and feet and dropped that cross into its post hole, this centurion takes one long last look from afar 
at Jesus' hurting, dying, gasping, bleeding corpse. And somehow he knows who Jesus is. Surely this man was God's son. I wonder, does he know that despite his humiliation, execution, and crucifixion? Or does he know it because Jesus is humiliated, executed, and crucified? It's an oxymoron, right? Words are so telling. An oxymoron is a pointed contradiction, a self-evident absurdity. The word oxymoron is an oxymoron in itself, a sharp dullness. I love oxymorons, you know, things like passive-aggressive, plastic glasses, soft rock. Some are more fun, rap music, sorry. <laughs> Vegan meat, almond milk, anyway. In Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, Javert describes Valjean as a sacred convict. In Les Miserables, the convict is not to be seized by justice. Hugo's sacred convict made me think about the ultimate oxymoron, the most patently ridiculous contradiction in the history of the world, the crucified Christ. The title Christ is an honorific, it's a title. It means God's anointed one. Coming from the Greek word oil, as in chrism, Ancient people crowned their kings by pouring oil over their heads and beards. It described who the new monarch was. So Christ is the crown prince, the king's ambassador. How can you talk about the crucified Christ? It's an oxymoron. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann goes a step further and calls Christ the crucified God. It's the title of Moltmann's book. And he came up with that when he was a prisoner of war in a Scottish prisoner of war camp in World War II. And he heard a fellow prisoner say, a theology which does not speak of God in the sight of one who was abandoned and crucified would have nothing to say to us then. You know, when you're living in the hopelessness of a prisoner of war camp, you need the cry of dereliction. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All Christian theology and all of Christian life is basically an answer to that question, Moltmann says. Ironically, when Moltmann was in that camp, he was an unbeliever at the time. He found his faith and his call to theology in the dereliction of a POW camp. He knew that only the crucified Christ could possibly answer the often tragic and senseless suffering of the human condition. He knew that Jesus was the answer to the question, why? There was a young boy who was about four years old and his family took a road trip to Roanoke, Virginia. And somebody on that road trip needed to get home in a hurry. And so instead of breaking up the trip, they made the return drive 10 hours long without stopping. The young boy was intelligent. He eventually went on to graduate from MIT and then become a rocket scientist. And he was a curious boy, as most rocket scientists probably are. And on the 10-hour drive, from the point that they left, he never stopped asking questions. 
Why is the sky blue? Why is water wet? Why is air invisible? Why did the dinosaurs go extinct? Why can't we go to SeaWorld and see a killer whale? Why do they call it Virginia? Why do they call it Maryland? Why do they call it Pennsylvania? Why do they call it New Jersey? Why do they call it New York? Why do they call it Connecticut? 10 hours of why. And finally they pull into the driveway and he asks his mother, why do they call it a missile and not a rocket? And why do they call it a rocket, not a missile? And his mom slumps over in the passenger seat exhausted and puts her head in her hands in defeat. No more whys, I can't take it anymore. He was four years old. You know, why is a great question. I taught my kids when they were very young to ask questions when they didn't understand what was going on. Now is our question to ask why. Have you ever done that in your life? Ask the question of why? My God, my God, why did you allow him to die? My God, my God, why do you sometimes make us bury our children? My God, my God, why? Why do so many die of starvation in the world? My God, my God, why? Why is there so much unrest in the Middle East? My God, my God, why? Martin Marty, the Lutheran church historian, put it like this. When I'm lost in the wintry night alone, I identify exactly with a cry already uttered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of that prior prayer of why, a prayer of aloneness, I am not alone. Someone in whom I trust has shouted it before, in worse circumstances. The crucified Christ was a forsaken one, the true derelict. The rest of us die in company, in his company. Never again is aloneness to be so stark for others. I want you to think about that. Think about it more eternally and inwardly than just the surface of this planet. When we all die, there are no more whys. For it is there where all questions will be answered. All questions are answered because Jesus posed that question first. None of us goes alone. I spent five years as a hospice chaplain, and certainly as a pastor, I have sat next to many a bed of a person dying. And I've come face to face with people's fears all day long, and oftentimes my own fears. And I often say these words to a person as they are nearing death. And though you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is nothing to fear, for God is with you. None of us ever die alone, for the crucified Christ, the ultimate oxymoron is always with us. God's rod and God's staff guiding us, leading each one of us home so that we might receive God's loving embrace. 
So if you cannot find God, maybe you're looking for God in the wrong places. Because you're not going to find God in the corridors of power. You're not going to find God in Washington, D.C. or Wall Street. You're not going to find God like the ancients in a palace in Rome. Paradoxically, God is often with the godless. So look for God in that lonely funeral parlor after you've bidden farewell to the one that you have loved for years because it is there that Jesus is. He knows what it's like to lose his friends. Look for God in the hospice room because he knows what it's like to look death straight in the face. Look for him in the rubble-strewn streets of Syria amidst the few survivors that still live there because God knows what it's like to be hunted down by one's enemies. Look for God when you've lost your health or your marriage or your job or your way. And it seems that you are all alone in the world. And even when God seems to go missing because there's so much pain, know that God is there because Jesus knows the pain, knows the loss, knows the rejection. Why would Mark leave us with nothing but these words? Nothing but the lonely, lost, God-forsaken word on the cross. Why? Because whatever valley that you have walked through, and whatever valley that you will walk through, you can be assured that our crucified God has already been there and you are not forsaken. For our God always promises to guide you, his rod and his staff comforting you. Amen.